Welcome to Vintage Homicide, the true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We will bring you historic murders with a special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. All proceeds from this podcast will gladly benefit 501c3s. Suitable charities are selected by the hosts or by the listeners. Listeners may provide suggestions by contacting us at vintagehomicidepodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report. All opinions stated herein are strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. We are your hosts, Miss Ruby Wild and Miss Mayday, and this is Vintage Homicide. be taken from this place to a lawful prison and thence to a place of execution where you will suffer death by hanging and your body buried in the precincts of the prison in which you shall be last confined before execution and may the Lord have mercy on your soul that was the old form of the death sentence which was delivered by a judge when passing the sentence of the law and the starting point of the life and times of Albert Pierpont. This is part two of the episode of the Pierpont family dynasty of executioners. We're going to arrive at the most famous Pierpont, Henry's son, Albert. Okay. Now he was born in Clayton, 1905 to Henry, but he was not following in the footsteps of his father necessarily, but of his uncle Thomas. Now, Thomas would let Albert read his diaries about the hangings that he did perform. Thomas kept copious notes about what he did, what happened, things like that, to ensure that everything from that point forward, from every single hanging to the next, made sure that everything went smoothly. We'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Albert wanted to make sure that he did the same. And so he had written a paper when he was younger titled, quote, When I grow up, I would like to be an official executioner. I mean, I'm sorry. That's adorable for somebody (laughs) of my liking, which is part of the reason that I don't have children. Because I'd be like, you've made me so proud, Wednesday Adams. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's... I I I appreciate the fact that he took such pride in it at such a young age to make sure that he wasn't doing it for any sort of malicious reason. And mm-hmm. so he actually wrote to the home office himself, like his father, in 1931, requesting to be placed on the executioner's list. And he assisted his uncle at the beginning of his career as his father had already retired and died in 1922 at the age of 44. So he was with his uncle because he couldn't assist his father. Mm -hmm. So his first job as an assistant was in Ireland in 1932 with his uncle to hang Patrick McDermott, who had killed his brother, John. And again, we're in the era where the hangman was not a full-time job. Like I said, like a lot of this stuff, it kind of overlaps. So we've been talking about a lot of it kind of intermixed. And it's because we're talking about a family. So as you know, you have 
grandparents, parents, and grandchildren all kind of living simultaneously. So you kind of have to talk about it all at the same time. So that's kind of what's happening here. Okay. And so he, we're talking Albert, he had gotten married in 1943, ran a pub with his wife, Annie, in Hollinwood called Help the Poor Struggler, which I would be there every weekend. I'm not even kidding you. What about you, Miss Mayday? That is a super cute pub name. If, I love if it. If I could go to that pub on the regular, Help the Poor Struggler, my husband and I would be there every weekend, minimum. That's awesome. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be making you and your hubs come with me. Um, Yeah. Come along. (laughs) Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. But unfortunately, oh my gosh, this is really horrible. But Albert wound up having to hang one of his regulars in 1950. James Corbett, when he had strangled his mistress to death. And so I guess this is part of the reason that you don't open a pub is this kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to be a hangman and a pub owner, I guess. It is. And like, yeah, to hang (laughs) one of your regulars. And yeah, we're not going to go deep into this. I mean, it's he strangled his mistress, got sentenced to death. It is what it is. And unfortunately, that really does suck. Mm -hmm. So speaking of Albert. Back to the story. So Albert actually hanged German spy Carl Richter. Carl had been captured when he parachuted into Britain May 12, 1941, and spent the next few days hiding out in a forest. When he came out of hiding, finally, someone noticed he didn't seem like he was from the area, and they reported him to the police. They saw that his papers, like how, I don't want to say like, okay, anytime that you're in any area, like especially now, it'd be like, let me see your passport, let me see your visa, things like that. Well, back then they didn't have that kind of stuff. So it was all papers. Well, his papers didn't seem right. They looked forged. And so he was taken into camp 020 and he was interrogated until he confessed that he was a spy. And he was charged with espionage under the Treachery Act of 1940. Right. And so again, this is wartime in the United Kingdom. I looked into the Treachery Act of 1940, and the closest thing, I think it's probably just a summation of a series of different legislative pieces, but I think the thing that I found that kind of best suited this was the Official Secrets Act of 1939, and it was a piece of legislation that was enacted during World War II in the United Kingdom, and its main purpose was to safeguard official information and protect national security during the war. So the act itself was an expansion of earlier official secrets acts that had been put in place previous to that because of the war. But there were a couple key components of the official secrets act. It's basically what you would expect. One is the prohibition of unauthorized disclosure. So it's a criminal offense for anyone to disclose, communicate, or make use of any official communication without the authority to do that, right? So of course, this was for military operations and classified information that was only utilized by the government. There was also the protection of government departments. So it basically protected government departments from unauthorized disclosure of sensitive information. So again, this was all aimed to prevent espionage and leaks that could be detrimental to the war effort. 
There was also penalties that were established for violations, and these ranged from imprisonment and fines, and it obviously depended on the severity of the offense. And it really only applied to individuals within the UK and British citizens in particular and subjects outside the country who engaged in unauthorized disclosure of official information. So if you were abroad at the time, because of course they were, were fighting on the right, war front, right. it would still apply to you because you were a British citizen. Ooh. And then there was a part of it that was for post-war secrecy. So it was a provision that required you to maintain secrecy even after the war's end. So this is kind of how this person was charged okay. with espionage because all of these things kind of applied to Carl Richter. Right. Um, I th- was he passing himself on forged paperwork as if he was a British citizen? Is that Yes, because he was a German spy. Mm, okay. So he was there. They were like, oh, let me see your documentation. He's like here. And they were like, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much how it went. So, yeah, I mean... I- Okay. So on December 10th, 1941, his execution was to take place, but this was far from a pleasant hanging. So when Albert arrived in the cell, Carl had run headfirst into the wall. Okay. Like nobody knows why, um, probably an attempt to commit suicide before the hanging maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the two of them actually struggled until Albert was able to restrain him and bind his hands. Now, these bindings didn't hold. Carl broke loose from the leather straps, and now other guards arrived to assist in restraining Carl. So normally, like, Albert would go into the cell. He'd be like, okay, it's time. Escort. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not at all what happened. He was fighting this. Okay. Yeah, and so this might have been, like, kind of what kicked off that executioner or anybody like that may have been escorted from this point further because it was just – Carl and Albert. Okay. And that's why this whole thing happened. And so they were able to manhandle Carl into the gallows. He had a hood and a noose placed around his neck, but Carl still was not giving up. And so just as Albert pulled the lever, Carl jumped straight up and that caused the noose to loosen, rise up to around his nose. It's supposed to be, yeah, around the neck and then the knot is usually placed on one side of the the neck Mm -hmm. close to the spine so that it breaks and severs the cervical vertebra it is and so so this time it rose on his face above his mouth below his nose but because the measurement was so precise because albert's really good at his job it snapped his neck immediately but it snapped his neck from nobody can see my hand motion but no what mustache region okay so mm-hmm. when he came down, it still succeeded in breaking. It his did. Back. It just okay. didn't do it how it should have. Okay. And so even though it was kind of botched, it really wasn't. Yeah. So Albert was still really good at his job. And so because of this, he was actually called worldwide to perform his quote unquote work. And he actually went to Hamlin Prison in Germany from 1945 to 1949 to execute around 200 people convicted of war crimes. He then traveled to Austria and trained their executioners in his methods to ensure that every execution pretty much happened flawlessly. Mm-hmm. They, the Pierpoints 
really took pride in their work to make sure like they knew that people were being sentenced to death, but they didn't believe that they were to suffer. Mm -hmm. And so by them training other people, it wasn't like them training other people to like, oh, all these people must die. It's they were training other people to these people that you say must die should die humanely. Right. Give them a compassionate death. Exactly. So to keep that in mind. So then he also traveled to Austria. Oh, I'm sorry. I already said that Austria trained them in his methods. He then also went to Egypt and in Egypt, he personally executed four British servicemen. Then in Gibraltar, he did the same. And now another inmate was Neville Heath. Neville was born in Essex, England in 1917. His father worked hard as a barber so his son could attend school, but he wasn't really scholastic. So Neville joined the Air Force in 1937, but that fizzled out. He went AWOL. We've talked about AWOL before, right? Absent without leave? Yes. Okay. So making sure, because I don't know if that's a um, just a strictly military term, an English term. I'm not 100% sure, but he did go AWOL. And he was arrested for fraud, housebreaking, and forgery because he was not living by above board means. So he was operating under the alias like Lord Dudley, Lieutenant Colonel Armstrong, and none of this stopped him from joining then the Royal Army Service Corps in World War II, and then he was sent to the Middle East. Now, when he was released from there within a year, he escaped the guard escorting him home and fled to Johannesburg, where he joined the South African Air Force. So pretty much you see him just bouncing from military service to military service because he's doing this at a time when every military service is just looking for bodies. Yeah. So people aren't looking too thoroughly into the background. They're just real happy to have somebody there. And then once he gets there, they're like, mm, something about you isn't right. Okay. So that's when they start looking into his background. So then in the South African Air Force, he wound up becoming a captain. He married and had a son, but that didn't last because she divorced him at the end of the war. And that was based on the grounds of desertion. He was court-martialed for wearing stolen medals. I'm not sure because, like I said, he jumped from military to military to branch to branch. So I'm not sure which branch or military service he was court-martialed from, but he was court-martialed. And he was eventually sent back to Britain, February 1946. Now, this was bad news for Britain because he was in his escalation phase. Uh So as anybody of us that know true crime, you know that people start mediocre. And, you know, this is why we punish the smaller crimes, the uh, misdemeanors, the minor felonies. And that's because just like a child, if you don't let them know that this is bad, this is illegal, They escalate. Well, his little slaps on the wrist were not enough, and he escalated. Okay. So Marjorie Gardner was 32. She was a trained artist who had separated from her husband when she met Neville. They had danced together at the Panama Club in Kensington. And the following day, when the manager went into Neville's room at Pembridge Court Hotel in Notting Hill Gate, he found Marjorie's body naked on the bed with sheets covering her. When she was uncovered, they saw that she had her ankles bound, her wrists were marked from restraints, and there were 17 lash marks. Her nipples had been almost bitten clean off, and something had been inserted. Okay, sorry, trigger warning. I'm sorry. I should have started this from the beginning. Um, (laughs) 
It's okay. Got it. Okay. Again, this is true crime. If you need the trigger warning, we are not your podcast. So something had been inserted into her vagina with force at some point. The blow was visible as it did cause trauma to her vaginal region. Okay. Her cause of death, however, was suffocation after all of that torture had taken place. So she was alive for all of the rest of it. Now, the whip that caused the lashes was not present and was determined by the pattern that it was a riding crop. And the wrist restraints were also not present. Okay. Riding crop. I think that we all know what that is. It's it's just that little stick with the leather buckle thingy at the end. Yeah. It's just a device used to kind of hit the horse with to speed up a horse's gait to right. a gallop. But it, yeah, it just has a, has a leather end. Right. And you like just slap it on its flanks. But as you know, a horse flank is a little bit more sturdy than a human flank. So. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, Neville wasn't done yet because he had not been caught. So the police did have his name. He did not use an alias when he rented the next room. Nobody knows why. (laughs) Like, okay. He just, he rented the room under his real name, but his lesson learned. So that was for the first one. But so the next hotel at the Tollard Royal Hotel in Bournemouth, he checked in under the alias. So the first death, he used his real name. Mm -hmm. Cops now had that real name. Second hotel, he checks in under the name Captain Rupert Brooke. Okay. So here he met Doreen Margaret Marshall. She was in her 20s. She served in the WRNS in the war. So that's the woman's Royal we've talked about that Service. Yeah, we've talked about that one before, right? Um, maybe, or did I just write about it for a future episode? Yeah, maybe just briefly. But in the context of World War One, a Wren is kind of how it was pronounced as in W-R-E-N, even though the acronym is W-R-N-S, is a member of the Women's Royal Naval Service. And it's a branch of the Royal Navy in the United Kingdom. And so uh, it was established in 1917 for the First World War. And they supported the war effort by essentially allowing men to be released to go into service at sea. So the women uh, stayed behind and performed a variety of non-combat duties so that their male personnel could be deployed, right, actively. And then they did mostly like clerical work, telecommunications. They did they did work in the offices at naval bases. And it was disbanded initially post-World War One, but then it was reestablished again in 1939 for service during World War II. So over the course of history, it eventually merged with the Royal Navy in 1993 because that's when women fully integrated into the Royal Navy. And then they serve alongside men in all As roles. They and should. Yeah. So, but that's historically what the Wrens were. So I guess Doreen was discharged recently from yes. her service. Okay. And sorry, when I say that, it's because Miss Mayday and I both come from military family backgrounds. So like my sister who served and cousins and aunts, uncles, fathers, grandfathers, all of that stuff. So when they say that they're tre- treated equal, finally, I'm like, yeah, they should be. They should. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the reason. This was the, not- right. This was the earliest sort of 
iteration of that of and women I serving. Love it. I feel like one of my sisters would have totally been part of the Wrens. Yeah, uh, she's of the mindset: go big or go home. So she knows who she is. I love you. Both my sisters listen. <laughs> um, okay. So anywho. Doreen did serve in the Wrens and she was discharged very recently. So now the pair had tea together at his hotel and they had such a good time that their date extended into the evening for dinner. I mean, come on, we've all heard about this. People go on dates. So they go real well. Yeah. They go on for 12 hours instead of the two that was initial. And so they went back to his hotel room. They started listening to music and dance, but Doreen started getting a little vibe about him. So she called for a taxi, just basically saying, you know, I'm tired. Heath canceled her taxi and said he would walk her home. She was seen leaving by the concierge and that was the last sighting of her alive. Okay. So she was reported missing and police traced her back to Neville. He offered to help the police look for her as he was the last one to see her alive. Now, when her family met Neville for the first time, they realized that he looked similar to the man Scotland Yard was looking for because Scotland Yard had posted his picture. Remember, this was like almost immediately after his previous murder with his actual name. Mm -hmm. And so Scotland Yard had been circling the picture of Neville and... Doreen's family was like, mm, this looks really a lot like you. So he laughed it off and he's like, oh, excuse me a second. I'm just going to go grab my coat. So the police were like, oh, don't worry. We'll go ahead and get it for you. And they decided to search the pockets of his coat when they went to get it for him. And they found a bag check for a railway cloakroom. So now they took that little baggage check, gave him the coat they went to the railway cloakroom and left there was a suitcase. And in that suitcase was a riding whip that matched the pattern that had been left on Marjorie. Okay. So we'll talk about like all these kind of like pattern matches, fracture matches. We've talked about it before with like forensic odontology, certain things of certain dimensions and, you know, stitching patterns. They really do coincide with object to substance. We'll call it that. Yeah. Like a wound pattern that's left behind some sort of impression. Exactly. And so those actually did kind of match. And so he was actually arrested immediately for Marjorie's murder, but Doreen was still missing. So Doreen was found a few days later by a waitress named Kathleen Evans. She had been walking her dog. She saw a swarm of flies over a rhododendron bush. You walk, you smell a funny smell, you see vultures or you see flies. Chances are there's something deceased there. I'm just letting you know right now. Mm -hmm. So when she approached, she did find a woman's body and that was identified as Doreen. So she too had been mutilated. She was found nude. There were knife wounds on her hands, indicating defensive wounds. Her ankles were bound. One nipple was bitten cleanly off this time. And her head was beaten, her throat slashed, and she too had an instrument believed to be a branch inserted into her vagina forcefully. Okay. I don't know why, like, I write this stuff and still some of the stuff I'm like. Yeah. Like, you may think that we're calloused because of the work that we do, the things that we have seen. I've seen more than most humans have, as has Miss Mayday. Some of this stuff still. Yeah. 
there's, there's no words. Yeah. Um, it, it's rough. It definitely is rough. It really is. And so I, I just, I just feel really bad. So, so yes, this branch inserted forcefully. So now he was actually brought to trial only for Marjorie's murder because they couldn't conclusively link him to Doreen. Okay. So he tried to go with the reason of insanity when his trial began September 24th, 1946, but it was found that he was a psychopath and a sexual sadist, but he did know the difference between right and wrong. So we'll get into it further on, I'm sure, a further episode, because I really want to dive deep onto this whole insanity defense. It's mm-hmm. not that you are mentally disabled, put it that way, any sort of mental deficiency. It is the fact that you don't know that what you are doing is something not right by the law. That is the insanity defense. So yeah. he knew and the fact that he actually hid the bodies, that what he did was legally wrong. So therefore that negated the in- insanity defense. Mm-hmm. But I will find a case that actually like way more pigeonholes that in the future, because that's not these ones. So his hanging was conducted by Albert, and that happened October 16th, 1946 at Pentonville Prison. So now finally, we're going to talk about the last woman to be executed in Britain on July 13th, 1955, because they did abolish capital punishment. Right. So we're going to talk about Ruth Nelson Ellis, who was born October 9th, 1926 in, I should have asked somebody how to pronounce this because it's Wales, Ryle, Real. Sure. It's Welsh. (laughs) And I know that no matter how you pronounce it in Welsh, it's wrong. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Raya Laurel, Derbyshire, uh, Wales. And she was the fifth of six children. Ruth was two when one of her brothers, Charles, was killed while riding his bider- bicycle. The family moved to England in 1941. Ruth was 14 and left school to make money as a waitress. She was a looker. And so at the age of 16, she started dyeing her hair blonde Obviously, it was, like, dark brown at the time, but, like, the rage was to be, like, this blonde ingenue, as we've talked about many times, and she started capitalizing on them looks. So, at 17, she met French-Canadian soldier, married man named Claire. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, I saw that, and I was like, her name's not Claire, so I apologize. She met Claire. But he was married, but she became pregnant in 1944, gave birth to her son with this married man, and she named the child Claire Andre. And the baby went by Andy. So bliss didn't last for Ruth because Claire abruptly just left back to Canada when he was released from his sentence, or (laughs) I say sentence, I'm so sorry, (laughs) service. When When you go overseas and you no longer have to be there, you're released from service, not sentence. So, (laughs) right. It's okay. We were also talking about transportation. And (laughs) exactly pretty recently, not to mention the fact, uh, talk to a few of my friends that have actually had to serve overseas and they will call it a sentence. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Gina. (laughs) So he abruptly left back to Canada to go with his family, his wife and his three children that he had in Canada 
when his service in England came to an end. And so she was kind of left behind with literally nothing but red roses and a note stating he was gone. The pair never saw each other again. So she was now a single mom at a very young age in the 1940s, and she needed to find more lucrative work. So she worked in the factories and clerical jobs until she was able to monetize her good looks by becoming a model and a nightclub hostess manager at the time. And so here's the thing. Nightclub hostess manager today's time. That just basically means you're managing a nightclub. Nightclub hostess manager in the 1940s. A little bit different. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So I, I'm starting to get that sort of hint there that maybe her her actual job was not quite as what we would take on face value. Okay. Get it. Yeah. Okay. So at the age of 23, she wound up marrying George Johnson Ellis in 1950. And her new husband was 41, recently divorced, and he had two boys of his own. He was a dentist and the couple met at her club. Now, unfortunately, again, Ruth was not to have wedded bliss as she quickly discovered that George was an alcoholic and would become violent once he started drinking. So Ruth believed that he was having an affair, and in order to try and keep him, she developed a possessive and jealous personality. The couple had- That works. It, always, every time, right? Okay. Completely. Like, mm, you must be cheating on me, so you must stay home with me at all times, always. Thank you. By okay. the way, if you're listening and you have that behavior, don't do it. <laughs> so... The couple actually did have a daughter, Georgina, in 1951, but George believed that she was not his biological daughter because he believed that she had wandered out on him. Now, Ruth wasn't having this terrible marriage anymore. The couple separated, and she went back to living with her parents, leaving George behind and continuing her work at the nightclub. So... It's here at the little club that she met her new beau, 24-year-old David Moffat Drummond Bakley. And now who was David? He was born in 1929, was the son of a successful dentist. His parents had divorced and his mother remarried. David went to live with his mother and stepfather rather than with his biological dad. So David did also have an older brother, Brian, who was a Royal Navy pilot during World War II, flying torpedo bombers before becoming a POW. So again, like we actually do have quite a few international listeners and this is why please don't think that we're being patronizing, but we do look at the demographics, the schematics and everything like that. And so what we call certain things may not mean the same thing in other countries. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about torpedo bombers, right? So like yeah. what exactly is a torpedo bomber? Correct. And then uh, just to segue also, POW is the prisoner of war. So right. torpedo bomber to prisoner of war. Okay. So during World War II, several flying torpedo bombers were used by various countries in naval operations. And these were essentially aircraft that were specifically designed to carry and deliver torpedoes. And these were used effectively as weapons against enemy ships. So they would fly over and drop torpedoes onto enemy ships. So that's what he was doing. And then I'm not quite sure how he became a prisoner of war, but. I'm not a thousand percent sure. Um, I do know like 
my grandfather, he was on a destroyer that actually, you know, those ships that find the landmines and stuff. And he had actually gone overboard. He's one of the few that was actually rescued after going overboard. But if you do go overboard, get maybe rescued by another vessel in the area. That could also be something that happened. By the way, go ahead and look into it. USS Trevor. My grandfather was one of the few men that was actually rescued off of a destroyer. That's cool. During World War II. So, okay. anywho, so well, he's actually... David, right? Yes. Okay. So he was released and he didn't live long after becoming a POW because he did die from encephalitis at the age of 43. Encephalitis, that's lung disease or? It's inflammation of the brain. So oh, it's. I was completely wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's caused by, usually by like a virus or a bacterial or fungal infection. It's usually, sometimes there's rare cases where it's an autoimmune disorder or like a weird allergic reaction to something, but generally viral encephalitis is the most common form. Basically the way that it works is that a virus affects the brain and it triggers an immune response that starts an inflammation reaction in the brain. So it starts to damage the brain tissue and affects the brain functioning. And over time, it could lead to death because you know you're you don't want your brain swelling because there's nowhere else for it to go in your skull and your brain kind of controls a lot of what your body does yeah so it it leads to like coma and if it's not treated quickly you could suffer a lot of severe brain issues and then death right and so like he also had a brother Derek who served in the military as well the Royal Air Force as a pilot during World War II, and he was actually awarded the DFC. Yes. That's another medal, right? Yeah. So it's called the Distinguished Flying Cross. It's a military decoration awarded to specifically people in the United Kingdom's armed forces and other United Kingdom Commonwealth countries for acts of valor and courage during aerial combat operations. So it was established in World War One, and it's usually given to members of the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. And then, yeah, it's typically given to pilots, navigators, and air crew for their, their bravery and courage during some sort of war operation. So it sounds like he's coming from a long list of awesome heroes in this. It also included Maureen, their Mm -hmm. sister, who was a Wren. She married U.S. Naval Lieutenant and immigrated to the United States. Okay. So like that entire family was just kind of like military heroes. Yeah. Okay. So except for David. (laughs) So David had become a lieutenant in the Highland Light Infantry before becoming a race car driver. And that was financed by his stepdad, Humphrey Wyndham Cook, who had also been a driver in the 1930s. So David was relatively successful and he was considered an up and coming driver in the early 1950s. And so I really hope that no one takes offense that we will not dive deep into his racing career. Again, I know for a fact we do have some racing enthusiasts that are listeners. Maybe we'll cover a case drop us a line, find us a person, and we will deep dive into vehicle racing. 
Okay. So David was relatively wealthy. And after the death of his father, due to his inheritance, that's when he got his money. And so within two weeks after meeting the couple, moved into an apartment and they lived above the nightclub. So they knew his family was reluctant to welcome a drinking club hostess into their family. Mm -hmm. The couple was notably jealous of each other because it seems like she may have had another man on the side, Desmond Cusin, and her husband may have also had another woman. And so now because of the jealousy, David would spend a lot of time at the club that she worked at, keeping an eye on his girl, Ruth. Now, this caused her to start losing focus, therefore customers, therefore money, and she was relying on them for their generosity, and anybody who's ever worked customer service knows you've got to work the customers in order to, you you give some to get some, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like, Miss Mayday and, and I have bartended together at least once, maybe more, and you understand <laughs> that interactions... Yeah. Boost. You, you have to make personal connections and you can kind of get the tips flowing and they, it kind of just adds to the overall fun of the night. And yeah, it really does. It really does. It's a win-win for everybody involved. Right. And so because of this, David actually had been living solely off of his inheritance at the time and that was bound to run out. So now with her starting to slack on being able to make up the income on her tips and David not really working and just living off the inheritance, money started getting tight. Mm -hmm. So as they were running out of money, they were both drinking heavily. The fights started and Ruth became pregnant again in 1955 in January, but that baby did not make it. And it was either by a miscarriage caused by a punch to the stomach by David or by lifestyle. No official documentation of to the cause of the miscarriage, but there was one. Okay. So David and Ruth were now fracturing at this point, and this progressed until the fateful day. David had been ignoring Ruth, and she wasn't having it, so she thought it was because he was seeing someone else, specifically a friend's new nanny. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) you know, (laughs) what a twisted web we weave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So on Easter Sunday, April 10th, 1955, at 9.20 p.m., she had Desmond drive her to the Magdala Club in Hampstead, London, and there she saw David, and when he wouldn't acknowledge her, she shot him with a 38 Smith & Wesson British service revolver that Desmond had actually acquired for her. Okay. And this was in front of all the witnesses, all of them. Like mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've all seen the outside of a club. We, tons all of, of people. <laughs> tons of people. Okay. All of them. And so her first shot at David actually missed, but the second shot hit him in the back and he went down. Now she exited her vehicle, walked up and shot him four more times in the back. So (laughs) there's no mistaking the intention. And there was one bystander, Gladys Yule, who was actually hit by a bullet at one point in her thumb from 20 yards away. So this was either by the first shot or a ricochet off of that first shot that she did from the vehicle. So she either did 
one shot from the vehicle that hit him and then exited and continued, or she did two shots from the vehicle, one of which hit this woman and one of which that hit Desmond. Okay. So for some reason, I mean, for some reason, obviously she was like running and trajectories could not have been done at the time. She was not where she was. So either way, Ruth just stood there after killing him and told the witnesses to call the police while David lay there dead in front of her. And an off-duty police officer who had been drinking at the pub, Alan Thompson, arrested her while she was still holding the gun. Okay. This is really an open and shut case. Right. Like, mm, there's nothing. Right. So she didn't deny that she did the shooting. And in fact, she gave a detailed confession. She did deny that she was in her right mind at the time. So again, insanity. But Uh as we said, insanity means, did you know that you would be punished at the time that you did this? Mm Mm-hmm. So the jury, based on the testimony of two doctors, did not believe that she did not arrive there with the intent to kill him, and it took them 23 minutes to find her guilty of murder with no recommendation for mercy. So therefore, she was sentenced to hang and remanded to Holloway Prison to await her execution. Now, Ruth never appealed the conviction, and on July 13, 1955, she was escorted to the gallows at the age of 28 to meet Albert and his assistant, Royston Rickard. Albert, he calculated Ruth to weigh 103 pounds, fully clothed, and so therefore he set the rope to 8 feet 4 inches. Now there was a sandbag tied to the rope overnight to remove any stretch before Ruth went over the gallows. I've been rock climbing, and we have these things that are called like static ropes. And what they are is when you rock climb, like if you top rope, when you fall, they kind of stretch. Mm-hmm. So they've they've got that automatic stretch to make sure that essentially you don't snap your back when you fall from the height that you're being top rope from. Okay. So it's kind of this kind of thing that they were doing with the rope. So the fact that they were pre-stretching it, it was to ensure that there wasn't some sort of bungee effect. Yeah, because he was calculating it to be specific enough to be a certain length that would break her neck and cause her no pain. So if it did stretch, it would probably not do what it's intended to do. And there would be a chance that it would be ineffective. It wouldn't break on the first drop. And then, yeah, the person would just kind of be dangling there. Exactly. So, and then suffocating. So, yeah, which um, is horrible. Right. Okay. So he pre-stretched the rope just to really ensure that there, that wasn't going to stretch. Because the pure points knew their business. They knew what they were doing. This was a family legacy. Right. Okay. So George, her husband had actually committed suicide in 1950 by hanging himself with a pajama cord in his hotel room in Jersey. And her son committed suicide by overdosing on glutathiamine. Yeah. Glutathiamide. Glutathiamide. Yeah. I'm sorry to all the pharmacists out there that are like cringing (laughs) at this. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, Um, it's okay. I don't know mm, if that's a branded name or what that is or if it's the actual chemical name, but 
Not a thousand percent sure, but it's sleeping pills. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's definitely a sedative and it was kind of introduced in the fifties as like a alternative, a safe alternative to barbiturates to treat insomnia. However, it was basically found out later that it was just as likely to cause addiction and it also caused severe withdrawal symptoms. So this would make sense why, you know, this would occur then on on this medication. I love that you look into so much of this stuff without me even asking you to, because I'm like, Oh yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Cause I had not heard of it, you know, and I was yeah, like, me so a leaping pills named this. I, was, I didn't hear about it, but it, I think it makes sense why it's, I don't think it's manufactured anymore because it is no different than just straight up other barbiturates. So Okay. So he commits suicide. I appreciate it. This is why we make a good partnership. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So in addition, actually, I'm sorry. I try to make light of the subject because then her daughter died from cancer at the age of 50 in 2001 or 2002. So it's kind of one of those things, but I feel the need to lighten up topics every now and again. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's um, kind of like one thing led to another for this tragic family. This whole family. Yes. Yeah. So now in 2003, the Court of Appeals looked at her case again, and the conviction was actually upheld as she was tried and convicted under the law in place in 1955. So the reason for this appeal was her family believed that she was suffering from a case of PTSD or postpartum from losing the baby earlier that year. So remember that we said that that had happened. And so, but everybody was like, So they were trying to get her like posthumously kind of exonerated. Exactly. Okay. But it didn't work. Okay. It didn't. All right. So now his last execution was 25-year-old Norman Green at Liverpool's Walton Prison, July 27th, 1955. He had stabbed two children to death in 1954 and 1955, and this held the record for the swiftest execution taken only seven seconds on the 8th of May in 1951 when he hanged James Inglis. Okay. Seven-second death, which is, that's more than you can say for lethal injection, for guillotine, for okay electrocution. All right. So we have a couple different things here then. So he has his last execution, which is in 1955, but he also holds the record for the swiftest execution, which was in 1951. Correct. There are two different people that he, that he hanged here, right? Correct. Okay. So right. I just kind of crammed them all in because I, I'm sorry, this episode is already so long. And if you want us to go like deeper into Everybody that the peer points actually executed, by all means, please, 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 please. We love social interaction. As you have heard from our Cray twins, like we will accept recommendations. Hit us up, recommend. If you want, we will dive deeper into any and all of these cases. We just really wanted to focus on the life of an executioner during this era. And that's the whole point of this episode. Yeah. So he, this is a super prolific career. It, it really is like the entire family. And there's actually multiple families. We'll get into that in a second. Back to Albert. Albert. So Albert actually resigned over money, allegedly, when he arrived at the prison for a hanging. 
But when he arrived, the prisoner actually had received a reprieve. And so Albert still wanted to be paid the full amount because he had shown up there to do his job. It was not his fault that his job was no longer necessary, Mm -hmm. but the undersheriff disagreed and only wanted to pay him a portion of what he was owed because he didn't actually do the hanging. So now it was like this whole thing. And he basically said, you know what, if this is how it's going to be, I quit. So he retired and ran a pub with his wife until they both retired from that endeavor to live in the seaside town of Southport in the 1960s. And this was a different pub called the Rosen Crown in much Lancashire. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Again, Rosen I'm- Crown. Yes. And crown. Okay. And cool. once again, I'm going to do a shout out. I am sorry, Dom from Horror House Pod. I should have asked you how to pronounce any of this shit before <laughs> we actually said it. So I'm sorry, Dom. Okay. There we go. So he actually wrote an autobiography called, quote unquote, The Executioner in 1974, where he said he had grief for his life's work and did not believe that capital punishment fixes anything. He said that his job was something he had to do and he did it with the most quote, supreme mercy I can extend to them and sustain in them their dignity in dying and death. The gentleness must remain end quote. Now I'll It really is like, it really is where he's just like, Yeah. I did what I had to do to make sure that they didn't suffer. Yeah. So he actually died in a nursing home in Southport, Lancashire in July 10th, 1992 at the age of 87. And he actually does have a life mask and a hand cast on display at the Wandsworth Prison Museum. Oh, okay. So we've, you know, we briefly polyped onto the abolishment of capital punishment 1965 by laborer mp sydney silverman we'll get into that in a future episode i'm 99.99 percent sure the abolishment of capital punishment will come into play yeah there's like a series of different acts along the way starting in like the 50s that ultimately ultimately leads to the complete abolishment of capital punishment in Great Britain and which ultimately ends up happening in like 1969 I believe where there's it kicks off a five-year like experimental period and then over time essentially gets abolished across the entirety of the United Kingdom much later in the 90s so yes And like I said, and I only know this because Miss Mayday doesn't always know what episodes we have typing up. So, but it sounds like we're going to talk about this again in terms Mm. of like the history of the capital punishment system kind of being abolished in the UK. So we'll leave it. Maybe just maybe leave it for a future. (laughs) We'll leave it for a future episode. We will. And and further, if you want to hear more on future episodes, if you like the tale of this family of executioners, just let us know because there are other families of executioners. This obviously is one of the most famous executioner okay. family. But while I was looking them up, I found so many others where it was like a family trade and they're fascinating, but I didn't really want to dive deeper if there was no interest. 
So hit us up, let us know, leave a review, literally anywhere. P.S. I'm going to drop this here. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, Stitcher is going away in August. Oh, really? It is. And unfortunately, like one, that is what I used to listen to all of my podcasts on. I have now switched to Spotify, but Stitcher will no longer be hosting anything because they're going to be gone. So switch to another platform now if you want to continue to hear from us. All right. So I heard back from my sister and what we used to call orderlies for like that, the maid, what were we talking about? Maid keeper or maid ward? Yeah. Ward maid. Now they are called environmental services, also known as EVS. So we don't call them orderlies anymore. They are the EVS service. Got it. Okay. So now to wrap things up for our palate cleansers, Miss Mayday. Yeah. Why did the executioner switch from hanging to guillotine? I don't know why. So he could get ahead. Ah, yes. I like that one. (laughs) Right? Okay, wait. I got one more. Okay. How did the executioner know his job was going great? How? Because he was killing it. Yes. (laughs) There it is. I was like, something to do with killing. (laughs) Got it. So there we go. Okay. Again, don't forget to stay tuned at the end of this episode for a promo from another indie true crime podcaster. And we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Vintage Homicide is produced and edited by your hosts. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. Follow him at the Real Matt Beck on Instagram. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. right now. Welcome to Cryptic Soup. I'm Thena. And I'm Kylie. We wanted to say hey and tell you about our podcast. It's a podcast we both host where we talk crimes, cryptids, murders, and a lot of wild stuff in between. You can find Mothman, Jeffrey Dahmer, SeaWorld, Spectrophilia, Casey Anthony, or even Skinwalker Ranch to be just a few of the crazy topics we cover. We even do some fun urban legends to make you feel like a kid at the campfire again. We're just two best friends hanging out, diving into all the things that your coworkers think you're a weirdo for wanting to talk about. We have a new episode every Tuesday at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're always open for case suggestions. 
Our Instagram is at CrypticSuitPod, where our DMs are always open, so slide on in. We always want to hear your opinions about any cases and episodes we cover. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most podcasting platforms. At Cryptic Soup Pod, the menu is always overflowing with crazy topics you'll want to hear about. So join the conversation today and come hang out with us. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.